Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Pensive Politics with Christian Watson, also colloquially and socially sometimes known as Mr. Watson. It's so great to be back with you guys again. I apologize for the lag uh, in our last episode where we did an interview with Miss Moore, uh, Miss Madison Moore, which was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into some of the details about uh, the, the sort of after effects and the, after effect, uh, and the, and the aftershock of Super Tuesday in a moment, which directly concerns that interview, I think. But first, I just want to say it has been an incredibly chaotic week in Washington and around the world with everything going on right now, from the uh, the putrid coronavirus infestation that is seeking, uh, or suppose, I suppose, not seeking, but um, looking to reap the life out of all those it can get into get its hands on, to uh, the president's very odd and almost boisterous campaign-esque response to uh, uh, the coronavirus, uh, to Joe Biden sweeping and Super Tuesday, all these things. We'll be talking about all of these things and more on this episode of Pensapologues, Mr. Watson. So let's get to, let's, let's, talk, let's first talk about Super Tuesday. This was an absolute shock last week. No one absolutely expected Joe Biden to win us uh, this entire thing. No one did. I'll, I, I'll tell you, I certainly didn't. You know, as a as a novice political observer, and having been on the ground in Iowa, and having been following closely the elections in, in, in Nevada, I thought that Joe Biden was absolutely toast. He didn't have any early momentum. But one thing shows, one thing's for sure: early momentum does not determine your future. Almost every individual who has won Iowa in the past few years has not gone on to win a nomination, whether that was. That would, uh, whether it was, um, I think, believe Ted Cruz in 2016, whether it just haven't gone on a nomination because Iowa is a very particular demographic. And if you say a very particular set of things to them, they're simply not going, uh, they're, they're simply going to vote for you or they're simply going to go for you. Pete was the flavor of the week, I suppose. He said a very particular set of things to them and they went for him. Um, but the rest of the country did not go for him. So Joe Biden, the uh, often forgetful ancient relic of old old way American politics, old world American politics, I suppose I should say, has been chosen, anointed as the savior, as the slayer, as the presumed slayer of Trump, as the individual who will go and will rescue the relic war. And if you believe some of the more radical of the leftists, the uh, demo, uh, the democracy from the clutches of this authoritarian despot, right, Joe Biden. It's almost a shame that it's come down to this. It's almost a shame that Democratic voters only have two possible choices right now. They have a 70-something-year-old devotee of the Castro regime in the Soviet state or Joe Biden, who's been in politics longer than I think most people who are even millennials or even a little bit older than that have been alive. Or have been ambulatory, at least. I'm pretty sure some people, even that are a little bit older, were still either in diapers or uh, in high school when Joe Biden was running around in Capitol Hill and in Delaware in politics. It is absolutely astounding to me how he's even, how this man is even 
gained enough traction to stay alive. It's almost as if they gave him both a, vit- a vitamin shot and a vitality spell to resurrect his corpse from the from from the dead, or he's not even resurrect. Cause I, th- I think I think he's very very much still. Uh, I think he's very much still, at least cognitively, very still uh, lagging. Perhaps animate his corpse, allow it to walk around enough to defeat the dragon that is Trump. I don't know. But this this does not portend great things for our public, my friends. This does not portend great things for us as a country as a whole, I think. Or even, I forget that, as, as individuals. Because I, I, I actually, I, I sort of hate when folks say the country as a whole is harmed by this. Because that's nonsense. The country as a whole consists of over 320 million people. Over 320 million people. It, uh, there is no one thing that is going to affect all 320 million people, not even an epidemic or a pandemic as we're seeing in the coronavirus. America is a nation of individuals, and individuals are loosely related and unique. Therefore, there shall be no collective thing that binds them all together or makes them all think the same or act the same or be affected the same way. Individuality and individualism is actually is oftentimes lost on the minds of our on the political minds of this century, and the past century before that, the past century before that, past century before. It's, it's gone back to I think to like the inception of America almost is when last time was individualism was actually recognized as a potent force. In the preamble, we hold this used to be self-evident, right, that all men are created equal. The entire construction of natural rights that came out of the Lockean school of philosophy. Montesquieu, with roots back in Aquinas, and the Thomas sort of formulation of where our rights come from. That has not been really recognized, and, and that is a that is, those were seeds that blossomed into the beautiful republic we have today, but that is not recognized these days by these sort of uh, collective terms. The country this, the country that, the country nothing. The country is nothing more than a a a, a conglomerate of individuals, and the. Any honest political analysis that wants to be correct, A, number one wants to be correct, and B, number one wants to be uh, uh, philosophically consistent, needs to recognize that. So I think that it is bad for the concept of our republic that someone who is losing his faculties quite clearly, and not only that, but is parroting nonsense that he, not too long ago himself, would have called nonsense simply for political expediency will occupy the Oval Office or will try to occupy the Oval Office. I don't think I don't think Biden wins. I think what happens, I think Biden probably wins the nomination. Although I think tomorrow in Michigan, Sanders may be able to do something. I, I don't know. But even if he does, Biden is still way, 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 way ahead in other states. I think it's very hard for Sanders to make up the ground he's lost Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday. Uh, although the Nadell can count, Sanders, Sanders is not too too far behind. I think Biden wins the nomination. I think he goes in the general election. I think you begin to see him his faculties decay even more. And I also think in the same token, you're going to see when the debates happen in the fall, which they, at this point, I'm not even sure if Biden's going to make it to the debates, but assuming he does, Trump is going to absolutely ruthlessly eviscerate this man. And not, not because Trump is correct or Trump has better arguments, because Trump certainly doesn't. In fact, there have been times where I wonder, does this man have his faculties himself? Does this man uh, retain full control over good sense? Because if good sense seems to be lost on our president, our dear president, <laughs> our dear leader, as they would say in North Korea, but in this country, our dear president, or to some in this country, our dear leader, uh, to those who think he's our dear 
leader in this country. I think I think you got the wrong the wrong nation state, my friends. <laughs> but it, it just makes absolutely no sense for him to win the general election, unless and unless Trump botches this coronavirus thing, which is to be which will, I'll, I'll move on to that right now. So the White House doesn't seem to have any idea whatsoever on message coordination. This is one of the basic lessons of communications, being able to able to number one, have a message, and number, uh, number two, have a cohesive message, and number three, have a uh, disseminate that in a very coordinated fashion. Doesn't mean it has to be entirely ordinary, but it should be consistent. When the CDC is saying this is a big risk, and 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 you are saying, on the other hand, it's not a very big risk, uh, the question is then asked: Who is correct? And if obviously we know who's correct, the, the CDC is probably correct. And not only that, but when there is uh, not cohesion between what your what your uh, health officials have said and what you are saying actively. Then it also shows that there's no cohesion within the administration, within the messaging. And normally, listen, on most issues, that's fine. On most issues, I think, you can allow some wiggle room to happen. But as it relates to a public health crisis where the government has a vested interest in, quote-unquote, securing the public, then, in, then that cannot happen in any circumstance and still be all right. It's just it's it's very it's very dangerous I think to have a government that operates in a vacuum like that or not even in a vacuum not even a vacuum that tries to operate in a vacuum but cannot necessarily cohere to that it is it's just not it's not very intelligent so we need we need we need a more intelligent kind of leadership and what strikes me as even more sultry intellectually even more uh, just disappointing intellectually was when Donald Trump went to the CDC not too long ago. I think it was yesterday or the day before that. And while he was walking in the CDC, Donald Trump quite literally had a Make America Great Again hat on. He, <laughs> I, don't, I tend not to criticize presidents or politicians for, for sartorial choices because I understand in part that their choices, much like their positions and their actual position in government, is merely a reflection of the public desire. Or the desire of the people who put them in office. Po- politicians are somewhat doppelgangers of our imagination. We never think of them that way. But politicians are somewhat doppelgangers of our imagination. When I say a doppelganger, a copy of, or in this sense, a living, animated, anthropomorphic copy of what we want them to be. Which is why those politicians who are actually consistent, principally and philosophically, a don't do well very uh, don't do well typically, and B get criticized at every end, even by those who are supposed to be like them, i.e. Justin Amash. <laughs> so when you when they have broken the doppelganger curse, politicians are temporarily eviscerated. When they haven't, then I guess folks just call them all kind of names, rhinos, establishment, but they still get in power because apparently folks like those kind of things. Some folks like that. There's, there's a market for those kind of things at least. Um, so I, yeah, I, I typically don't uh, criticize politicians' um, sartorial choices, but there is nothing in any standard, any sort of any, any sort of even custom, for a president of the United States to be donning an insignia for his reelection campaign while dealing with a public health crisis. 
there are just some times where the politics does not need to be involved in something. This is part of the reason why I think the, the entire philosophy of small government is essential. Because, believe it or not, having the government involved in, public, in, in health, i.e. making it public, in, incentivizes the government to quite literally make quote-unquote health decisions that are favorably politically and may not be favorably in terms of, favorable in terms of the health of people. Because there is conceptually a gulf between what is good politically and what is good uh, bodily or what is good in terms of health. There's a gulf there. Most of the time, they're going to coincide. Most of the time, people do not want to die by some sort of virus or some sort of bacterium. Most of the time, there's going to be a demand for health for, for healthcare. There's going to be demand for certain sorts of programs that um, protect public health or protect health in general. But it is not, that is not necessary to the concept. So there can be at times where public health and where politics uh, c- uh, can uh, diverge. And I think that this is a, a small snapshot of what that, what that looks like. So he, he wore that hat. He walked around while lauding himself, while lauding Vice President Mike Pence, who I'm not entirely sure why Mike Pence is doing much of anything, uh, much less trying to deal with one of the uh, one, one of the biggest mass panics of the century so far uh, to handle the situation. And he just absolutely presented himself in a way that is distasteful and disdainful, not only to uh, himself, but also to the presidency as well. I, I, it, it never, it escapes me how there are certain standards for politicians and presidents. And yet Donald Trump himself has carved out an entirely new standard that whenever you say, oh, it's not presidential for him to do this kind of thing, it doesn't have any effect, either either conceptually or, or materially. It doesn't have any effect because, and this ties back into the messaging part of this entire coronavirus thing, it doesn't have any effect because guess what? Standards are reflections of what we are willing to accept. They are reflections of our mind. As Freud would say, the ego. That's what, that's what standards are. Standards, at least political standards. I think that there are all kind of other standards that are that, that are different, that are have more set in stone, like perhaps philosophical standards or something like that. But political and social standards are typically reflections of what people want. Putting it simply, this is the entire thing about populism. When people want a different thing. The standards shift. You should not be surprised. Things evolve. Things change. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. Which is why advancing arguments based upon contingencies against politicians is a very unwise thing to do. So whenever someone says to you, oh, Donald Trump is not presidential, that very well may be true. That very well may be absolutely true. And guess what? I, I, I agree with you. He probably isn't, according to the traditional conception of what presidential is. Although Andrew Jackson used to go out in the street and get in gunfights with people who didn't who disagreed with him. Teddy Roosevelt himself uh, had had quite a, a sharp tongue for his dissenters. Uh, President Obama didn't really care about what Congress said when it came to war powers, and he really didn't care. <laughs> and he really didn't care too much about the civil rights, uh, the individual rights of of, indivi- of 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 Americans when he decided to go ahead and, and sign the uh, reauthorize the uh, Patriot Act and in, in, in the in the pernicious, uh, deceptive, disgustingly philosophically disgusting uh, bill, the Freedom Act, USA Freedom Act. 
None of those things necessarily spell presidential to me. But because Donald Trump shocks the conscience of many people, we are willing to use that term harsher and apply it more rigorously towards him than we were about than we are to other people who have served and who may have acted quote unquote presidential in the form of being very manicured in their in their in their talk and uh, their in their actions in their walk. But their but uh, in their legislative or political actions being anything but. So we need to really examine why we hold Trump to a certain standard that we've held others to, but doesn't manifest in the same way we've held others to. Because there's been consistency out through uh, throughout his American history as to what we call presidential. There's been consistency, but that consistent standard has not materialized under the Trump era. So yeah, don't never say okay he's not presidential because that doesn't really matter. What matters is is he sound? Is his or more so are his actions sound? And going before a bunch of very educated people who are dealing with an epidemic and trying to softly sell your campaign, and then during an epidemic today, tweeting about how the Democrats are terrible, tweeting about all these sort of ridiculous things uh, during an epidemic. Is that sound action for the, one of the most powerful orators of the American experiment in the world? No, it is not. It is a corrupt action. It is an ideologically corrupt action. It is an inconsistent action, inconsistent with the vision and the goals and the, and the sort of desire that the founders had for America. It is, an, it is an unwise action. There are all sorts of conceptual arguments you can make for this. But the entire way this president has handled the coronavirus thing has been nothing, absolutely nothing, but distasteful. It's been nothing but distasteful. And uh, I believe Ben Shapiro said, uh, this one of the times I agree with him, he said, Donald Trump, you need to stop tweeting and just handle the issue. And Joe Biden, for his credit, was actually right about something. Joe Biden said, yes, Donald Trump needs to shut up about the coronavirus thing. He's right. The president has absolutely no business talking about it in the way he's talking about it, especially when there's already not enough confidence in his ability to handle it as he's been handling it. None whatsoever. And so this this actually leads me to a different topic. This leads me to the topic of panic in American politics. The markets crashed earlier this morning. Actually, they opened and they just – it was – Terrible. The Federal Reserve had to step in and do its pernicious monetary wizardry re- 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 as always to soothe the pain, the, the pains and the fears of, of investors. And now the president is also just very, just blowing it off and, and saying, "Well, it's not really, it's not really a big deal. This happens. The the sort of the the oil dispute in the Middle East happening right now between Russia and other countries is why this is happening." Uh, that, that and listen. There may be some merit to that statement, but I also think that this is more than just some oil crisis gone astray. This is more than just some economic catastrophe, run-of-the-mill economic catastrophe uh, or, or event that affects the markets. People are racked with fear and panic about this coronavirus thing. Even at my, even at my, my own school, I cannot tell you the signs I have seen um, asking people not to use, not not to bring in their own cups because apparently their own cups can contain coronavirus, and they're 
their cups are, are somehow inferior to the school-provided cups, even though the school-provided cups are probably taken through multiple hands by when they're washed, when they're clean, when they're uh, used by other students. Uh, but apparently, uh, a cup that is used only by one person is at more of a, more of a risk transmission than a school-used cup. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but that's how the logic goes. But people are distracted with fear about this. And the markets do not like uncertainty. And uncertainty is the principle that underlies this entire coronavirus thing. Again, the flu has killed, and this is a very tired point. This is a very dreadful point because this is a call. This has been a point that so many people have made, on and on and on again. But sometimes some points need to be made in succession to have an effect. The seasonal flu has already taken a lot of lives, as it does every year, much more lives than the coronavirus. The reason this is getting so much panic and so much and so much concern is because, well, the coronavirus is something that we are not necessarily used to. The coronavirus is something that, that, that we just don't really understand all that well, although within the few weeks of it emerging, we have already identified how it transmits, number one. It's nature, number one, that's being a virus. How to effectively treat it by yourself. We have already began unraveling this mystery of a monster. The monster's skin and its appendages are literally falling off, and they are opening up to reveal a sort of uh, a crown jewel of knowledge within it that we are taking with scientific method, and we are dissecting perfectly, perfectly, to actually find the source of, uh, to, find, to find the underlying foundation of this virus so that we can eliminate it. Eliminate, eliminate it. That's just brilliance. The story shouldn't be that the coronavirus is going through all these countries and there's 114,000 plus folks affected, even though there's a, by the way, there's a 94% survival rate out of those 114,000. Very few actually die among a lot of age groups. Um, the story shouldn't be that. The story should be we have now, vis-a-vis the scientific method, vis-a-vis empiricism, we have conquered the throes of nature. We have conquered we have began to conquer Mother Nature's threats. We have taken dominion over our individual lives and destiny vis-a-vis -vis the scientific method. That should be the story, people. It speaks to the brilliant sacred fire that burns within the bellies of all humans. That allows us to do phenomenal things like this. Just 100 years ago, remember, we're in the new 20s. We were in the new 20s. Just 100 years ago, people, in 1920s, when the similar thing happened, half a million people, or even more than that, died. It wasn't if they're going to die, it was when. When this is happening, I mean, and, and from that point on, we have just expanded our vocabulary of knowledge. We have expanded the foundation upon which we can build new consensus. And now that this is happening, my friends, it's a 94% survival rate, number one. Number two, only 114,000, as, as of the transmission of this podcast, this message, affected. May go up, of course. Globally, may go up. But still, that is a phenomenal reality. That is something that is very good. You should not despair over that. Um, so my advice is simply wash your hands. Um, be grateful. Say a little prayer if you're into that. <laughs> um, and just recognize the glory of individual progression and, and advancement.
Really, that's the coronavirus story. The coronavirus story is not. It absolutely is not that we're all going to die. It's that we are. We have more capacity to live than we have ever had in American history. Ever had in American history? Seriously. Um, and so, this leads me to my my last topic. Recently in Alabama, the <laughs> the Yellowhammer State. Uh, brilliant Governor Kay Ivey delivered the final blow to a individual who, in my opinion, is one of my personal inspirations. Who he's just his 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 struggle against the against state sanctioned barbarism has been nothing but admirable. Nathaniel Woods, she finally agreed to let him get executed by the state for allegedly mur- killing allegedly murdering an officer, police officer. So let me give you some background on the Nathaniel Woods case if you don't know about it already. Nathaniel Woods was a man in Alabama who in 2004, along with his roommate, uh, were renting a drug house in Birmingham. And three officers arrived at the drug house to deliver a misdemeanor warrant. Unfortunately, Mr. Woods allegedly led the three officers to the back of the house, which allowed his roommate... His friend, his accomplice, his partner in crime, to ambush the officers and kill them all. That was a story. Reality is a little bit more complicated than that. So there were a total of four officers. Well, there was one officer on the scene who was not involved with the initial three a cluster of three officers that got, that got shot and killed. He survived the the encounter, and he testified on Mr. Woods' behalf and said, "Hey, this guy didn't pull the trigger. The guy who actually pulled the trigger." Then went and testified on Mr. Woods' behalf and said, hey, this guy didn't pull the trigger. Then several other folks were kept affirming that fact. And the st- it was so blatantly obvious, because they couldn't find the secret, that the state itself, the prosecutors, even admitted, yeah, he didn't pull the trigger. Yet this man was still convicted of murder and sentenced to death. So part of this is because... Alabama wrongly situates being an accomplice on the level of being an actual offender or initial offender. There's a sort of legal confusion there in Alabama law that just makes it all the more easier for innocent people to be accused and uh, accused and convicted of things they really, really, really shouldn't be uh, convicted of. Number one. Number two. It's also a product of the state to satisfy the political biases upon which it lies, upon which it, is, it was created. You have to understand, the government is a mechanism, as I said before, the reflection or the extension of the imaginations of the, of the people who put it in there in terms of in, in republics and especially in democracies. That's what the government is. The government changes every two, three, wherever you are, four years. The government is a tool, not a living entity. It is a tool. It changes. And it can be used as a, as a tool, and is often is used by it as a tool, especially in the case of Mr. Woods. So the actions of prosecutors are going to reflect the actions of people who put them in office or the desires of people who put them in office. And in, in Alabama and a lot of conservative states, there is a very, very strong uh, emphasis on supporting on supporting the police, aka backing the blue, which is fine. Listen, police officers are by and large very good people. 
I have nothing wrong with them. I have problem with people who do uh, officers that do misconduct. I have problem with officers who think they are above the law. I have problem with 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 the police departments being shielded by qualified immunity, and and not being able to be sued without um, going through all these ridiculous legal hoops and and hurdles. I have a problem with all of that. I am not going to collectively brand and malign a single group of people because I think some of the some of them some of those people some of the individuals within them, that, that group do bad things. Groups do not have consciousness. Groups do not have actions. Individuals have actions. So I'm not going to sit here and say I black back the blue. And I'm also not going to say I hate the blue because I don't. That, none of those things are true. Like, how can I back or hate the blue when the blue itself is an inanimate concept that does not live? And if it does live, it lives within individuals and therefore is an extension of individual actions and consciousness. It makes no sense. So I support any individual who seeks to preserve the natural rights of others. That's what police are supposed to do. Most officers do that. I like that. So I'm not, I'm not saying that cops are bad. But I'm saying an, an immense zealotry to conceptual collectivism does not permit for the best of outcomes. In the case of Mr. Woods is in a, prim a prime example of that. So the state just kept on and kept on and kept on. And even though they admitted he didn't actually pull the trigger... He was convicted for murder and put for death. So Martin Luther King III came out against this. Kim Kardashian West came out against this. A lot of people mobilized on the side of Mr. Woods. His attorneys kept peeling, kept peeling, kept peeling, which is why all the way to 2020 is why it happened a few days ago. Everyone tried, everyone with, a, with good sense, even the surviving officer, even the gun, they tried to save Mr. Woods' life because he, he, was, he, was, he, was, he, he was being put to death for something he didn't do. Yet, unfortunately... That wasn't good enough. And Kay Ivey, the governor of Alabama, said he was judged by a jury of his peers, and therefore, that's what that's how the that that's how the decision needs to be needs to be needs to go. He was given justice. The attorney general of Cal, uh, of, uh, of of Alabama, Steve Marshall, I believe, said, and he's a cop killer cop killer isn't it interesting how a lot of folks especially those who are zealous about a particular thing will brand you in terms that satisfy the sort of conceptual servitude in which they're enslaved and they will try to in part enslave you into their paradigm manacle of delusion to make themselves feel validated in their sentiments it's a form of parasitism. They're parasites. They're ideological parasites. This, uh, this Attorney General of Alabama, he's an ideological parasite. For number one, A, disregarding the evidence that Mr. Woods never even pulled the trigger. B, disregarding the evidence that Mr. Woods himself probably didn't even plan. Actually, he didn't, he didn't even plan that those cops killed, number one, so it wasn't an ambush. And C, disregarding the fact that, it, that the criminal justice, criminal justice system has some serious flaws. Literally, all of that fell on deaf ears to Mr. Marshall because he had it in his head that this is the highest law enforcement official in Alabama. He had it in his head that he was a killer, a cop killer. We didn't kill anyone. At worst, at worst, at worst, he sold drugs. At worst. 
So it's just absolutely astounding to me that we have these sort of ideological parasites in office. And no one ever thinks to challenge. Because look, Mr. Marshall himself is probably a good man or whatever. I'm not trying to attack his character. But the ideology that the ideology that has captured his mind and that is reflected in his behavior is what I'm going against. I pray for him. I have no. I am a spiritual person. I have. I have no. I have no problem with him or anyone else. I forgive everyone. You know, we are called by Christ to forgive everyone. Forgiveness is the sort of alchemy of, of growth because we forgive people. We shed we shed the skin. All good stuff. I'm not trying to turn this into a religious podcast or anything like that, but I'm just trying to be very clear where my metaphysical worldview lies. However, when you are so captured and gripped by hate and ideological conformity and insularity that you cannot even recognize the value of another man's life, something has gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. So the death of Nathaniel Woods, and I'm writing about this actually as, uh, as, as this podcast is getting released, should really just tell us and show us that the death penalty itself needs to go. The state should never have the ability to use political bias as a means of permanently imprinting its footprint into the life of someone else by taking it. Number one. Number two, the death penalty is fundamentally ineffective. Literally, if you look at the stats, it's something I don't do very much because I, I think that the conceptual reasoning is better than statistical reasoning, but it's whatever. If you look at the stats, quite literally, there is a gulf between states that have the death penalty and states that don't in murder rates. States that have it have higher murder rates than states that don't. There are 30 states that have it. <laughs> it, it, it. It's just ridiculous to me how people argue, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a deterrent. No, it's not. No, it's not. If it's a deterrent, why is there still why is there a preponderance of crime murder murder particularly which is which is where which is where the death penalty is considered most of the time in certain areas? I just don't understand. Then someone may raise the point. Well, death row is fundamentally ineffective. There are people there all the time. Well, okay, that's fine. But when you convict someone, you put them on death row. They're on death row. They can't really harm anyone anymore. So that was that was that, that argument was to be prevail. You would have to show me that people on death row were still getting out of there and killing people, which is not happening because they're on death row for a reason. They're locked up. So it just appears to me that, that, that the deterrent factor, plus the deterrent factor, you don't even have to. You don't even have to do, you, you don't even have to kill them to deter people, ideally with the death penalty. Ideally, you just put them, say, okay, you're going, you're going to die and people don't want to do it. That's not happening. So by any metric, by those few arguments, the death penalty still just falls. It just absolutely falls. And so it's my hope that eventually America will move beyond this archaic, barbaric, disgusting method of adjudicating 
justice in, in this country, in this country that is founded upon the preservation, the dissemination of life, liberty, property, or as that immaculate Thomas Jefferson once said, at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is my hope that we will move well, that we will ascend to a higher level of conceptual and spiritual understanding to recognize that life cannot and must not be within the provision of the government in any way except and only except when to preserve it at any cost. The government should not be taking life. It shouldn't be. With that, my friends, I leave you with a hearty thank you for listening to me, hearty thank you for subscribing to the podcast. I hope to be giving you much more of these uh, as soon as possible. Uh, how this is going to work, we're going to be doing Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays with Sundays for interviews. And so pay attention to my social medias for all the all new information. And again, thank you so much for listening. Hope you guys have a phenomenal evening. Bye.